At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its low thighs, while all about it reel shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Surely the second coming is at hand, the slouching sphinx ready to take us down once and for all. The clip omits Yates's part about how the center cannot hold. Well, as Chris Knoll said, the Archons have ensured there is no center anymore. And thus, in this Philip K. Dick world, reality itself is falling apart. One mental breakdown at a time. Christoph, let me ask you, why do you think that uh, Truman has never come close to discovering the true nature of his world until now? We accept the reality of the world with which we're presented. It's as simple as that. But that's why you have arrived at the virtual Alexandria. To create new centers, cores of imagination, possibility, and potential. To write your own gospel and live your own myth. Can this make a difference in our social-political world? It can if we understand how the social-political world is just another arena of myth, magic, and meaning. And turn the blood-dimmed tide back upon those worse who are filled with passionate intensity. You have arrived at the virtual Alexandria to turn back the stark reality warning of Frank Herbert when he wrote, most civilization is based on cowardice. It's so easy to civilize by teaching cowardice. You water down the standards which would lead to bravery. You restrain the will. You regulate the appetites. You fence in the horizons. You make a law for every movement. You deny the existence of chaos. You teach even the children to breathe slowly. You tame. They will do it by bypassing the sort of rational side of man and appealing to his uh, subconscious and his uh, deeper emotions and so making him actually love his slavery. I mean, I think this is the danger, that actually people may be in some ways happy under the new uh, regime. 
So welcome to the desert of the real. Welcome to Aeon Bite. We don't take prisoners but liberate them. We are not the final authority on anything but hope to be an endless possibility for everything. Divided we stand, together we rise. We're raging against heaven and storming the gates of hell for our misplaced childhoods and paradises lost. We accept this is a universe where men have nipples. Birdie Num Num Peter Sellers got away with wearing brown face in the party. And Keanu Reeves got away with the same in Little Buddha. Oh lord of my own ego. You are pure illusion. And that someone wrote a song entitled Warm Leatherettes. But hey, we know that heresy shouldn't be this much fun. But it just is. It just is. We are the high priests and priestesses of Hermes, the god of thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers. And we eat nervous breakdowns for breakfast because we are of the broken places who have become so strong. It's all fun and games until someone loses a third eye, and then it's just gnosis. If it can be destroyed by the truth, it deserves to be destroyed by the truth. I am your host, Miguel Connor, your pompadus of Gnosis, and that smell of colitas rising through the air of a world gone mad. Always honored to be your midwife of contraband truths and that remembrance of when you were higher than the gods. All the gods, all the heavens, all the worlds are within us. They are magnified dreams. As mentioned, this show will make you understand the dark spellcraft and eldritch forces that brought us this second coming state of affairs. That is because we have the honor of having John Michael Greer, who materializes at the Virtual Alexandria to discuss his new book, The King in Orange. The Magical and Occult Roots of Political Power. What happened to the American dream? It came true! You're looking at it. Beyond John's penetrating insights, get ready for bigly doses of Robert Chambers, Dion Fortune, Carl Jung, Oswald Spengler, Giordano Bruno, Juan Culliano, and other magicians of the higher mind. Those who broke down the hologram of that empire that just won't bloody end. I should mention too that for the audiobook version of The King in Orange, I am the voice narrator. Should be out when this show drops or soon after, so check it out. It was a sigil magic spell narrating this work, just as it was reading it. Inner Traditions, the publisher, rarely skimps on the esoteric intensity of their books. And that's a very good thing. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? As I've often said, millionaires don't do astrology. Billionaires do astrology. 
That means that the oligarchs have been using magic against a common man for millennia. It's time to finally accept this, to finally break their blood-dimmed tide and stop the ceremony of innocence from being drowned. Whether you like it or not, the second coming is at hand. And it's a matter of will you get stepped on or not as the Sphinx reaches Bethlehem for one final apocalypse. You shall not pass! Don't you see? The elite don't care about you. Never have. Ever since the priest and the king figured out a grift to keep all the sacrificial meat and produce sacrificial virgins. Power corrupts absolutely, no exceptions. That is cosmic law. Power causes one to be filled with the desire to mimic the vampiric Yaldabaoth, always full for that insatiable desire for total control and fool's gold creativity. Oh, and that rapey, rapey hunger. Don't you see this? As above, so below, and thus all our institutions are hopelessly compromised because they are an extension of the god of this world. This world you made will always be broken, just like you. I mean, as Gordon White said, tyranny can only thrive in centralization. And tyranny will always spread given a chance, because, as Philip K. Dick wrote in Vallis, the empire proliferates like a virus and infects with its derangement anything it touches. So we must decentralize the nations, decentralize our egos, and decentralize heaven itself. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Anarchy simply means without archons in Greek. And it's time to send them packing over the rainbow. And John agrees with me that we must embrace the trickster archetype. Even beyond Hermes to the coyote or the moon or the changer and connect further with our land and its mythic energies. There is no other choice in all of this, or else the widening gyre will never stop, and the center will be filled once again by some authoritarian dark charm that lobotomizes our collective mind once and for all. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. As Clark Emery said, the awakening of an individual is a cosmic event. And as I say, the awakening of an individual is also a cosmic rebellion. So wake up and go to war with me. There is no other way Regardless of the talking point enchantments you hear every day from Medusa Legacy Media and Circe Social Networks. 
There is only your way of becoming again, a liberated spirit who lives to inspire others and show others their potential. Always away from the hypnotizing propaganda of the priest and the king, the politician and the technocrat. As Bucifa said on Twitter, abolish reality, defund the archons, dethrone the demiurge, define dream time. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. As a bonus to John's interview, I would like to include my interview with Gary Lockman on his similarly themed book, Dark Star Rising. Although John talks about chaos magic in The King in Orange, we focus more on high-level archetypal and magical aspects of politics today. In my interview with Gary, we centered on chaos and other magic in Western society not just in the USA, but also in Russia. After these two interviews, you'll be ready to take on that sphinx with his pitiless gaze. Or you'll be triggered and ass-clenched because you've been compromised by the Lochnar of the heavy metal movie. But, you know, still buy the audiobook, and don't forget to tip Sophia on your way out led us to a fantastic interview with John Michael Greer. This constitution is nothing but a license for oil companies and foreign interests to destroy my beloved Wadia. Wadia will remain a dictatorship. Be quiet. Why are you guys so anti-dictators? Imagine if America was a dictatorship. You could let 1% of the people have all the nation's wealth. You could help your rich friends get richer by cutting their taxes and bailing them out when they gamble and lose. You could ignore the needs of the poor for health care and education. Your media would appear free, but would secretly be controlled by one person and his family. You could wiretap phones. You could torture foreign prisoners. You could have rigged elections. You could lie about why you go to war. You could fill your prisons with one particular racial group, and no one would complain. You could use the media to scare the people into supporting policies that are against their interests. I know this is hard for you Americans to imagine, but please try. I will tell you what democracy is. Democracy is the worst. Endless talking and listening to every stupid opinion and everybody's vote counts, no matter how crippled or black or female they are. Democracy. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by John Michael Greer to discuss his book, The King in Orange, The Magical and Occult Roots of Political Power. John, thanks for coming back on the show, and how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me back on. Pleasure is all mine, and yes, as we were discussing, uh, 
really enjoyed your book a lot and uh, I read it and then I did the audio version for Inner Tradition. So <laughs> this is a book I have lived and I am very fortunate to have lived because the, the messages are amazing and uh, you give uh, warnings about the present, a uh, great history of how we got here in the United States and where uh -huh. we might be going. So good job. Thank you. It's, this is this is stuff that I've been, for obvious reasons, brooding over for years now, um, as I've watched the various vagaries of our recent history unfold, um, the coming of the Trump era, the uh, the various strange changes that have happened since then. It, it's stuff that, that I needed to talk about, and I think a lot of people want to hear. Oh, yeah, definitely very much. And uh, yeah, because I think all of us are still trying to unpack a lot of it, uh, at least uh, <laughs> all of us who are looking for, um, you know, uh, a higher, uh, I don't want to say higher state, but from a mm -hmm. bird's eye view of magic, archetype, mm -hmm. uh, psychic mm -hmm. forces. So your book definitely puts it into perspective. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm amazed because you also are able to talk about the, the the Biden win, the coronavirus. So you must have just rushed it and put it all in at the last minute, or how did it work? Okay, what the, this book originally started as a series of essays online. I started in January of 2016 with, during the presidential campaign, watching what was going on, what was moving through the crawl spaces of the American consciousness at that point. That was it was the 20th of January, as I recall, that I posted an essay on my blog, um, Ecosophia, saying, "Good Lord, Trump's going to win this one," mm. and. Um, it kind of unfolded from there. I wrote about various things, and all through the Trump years, I was doing a lot of political writing, a lot of essays in various places, especially on my blog. And so as things wound down toward the election, I started pulling it together into a book. And then um, I actually had the book essentially finished until the, before the election happened. And obviously, there was the big one big question. As soon as the election was over, I was able to look at this, the situation and say, okay, well, this was not what either side thought they were going to get. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and talk about where it went from there. And so it was It was simply a matter of writing, um, I think I had three or four paragraphs to add, because um, this, the, the events of the 2020 election seemed to baffle a lot of people, but they did not really come as, as an immense surprise to me. I thought there was a greater chance that Trump was going to pull off a narrow victory. Um, he didn't, as we saw. But it certainly wasn't the kind of thing that either of the, you know, the sort of mainstream narratives were claiming. And that was something that I was prepared for, because one of the things that, that I had realized quite early on is that all the mainstream narratives that are talking about the Trump phenomenon and everything that was connected to it were not there to try to explain things. They were there to try to divert attention into um, thought stoppers, basically. Oh, yeah, I would certainly agree. And uh, the name, The King in Yellow, uh, the for the audience, where did, <laughs> sorry, I just gave it away. <laughs> you say, it's, it's easy to do. Okay, um, the, the, king, the reason I called it The King in Orange, there many people at this point know about H.P. Lovecraft and some of the other writers who influenced him, who were friends of him, of his, who basically helped create this entire literature of cosmic horror, not just ghosts or werewolves or dull things like that that, but the sudden realization the world is not what you think it is, that 
you know, you think you're going across your, you're going about your everyday life, everything's fine. You are walking on a thin skin above the abyss and you don't know it. That's Lovecraft's basic theme. The world is a much weirder place than you want to admit. And sooner or later, a tentacle is going to reach out and grab you and pull you into <laughs> some strange space beyond imagining. Well, I, I had been, I had actually been, when all this started boiling up, writing a series of novels based on um, kind of a reworking of Lovecraft's world. And the basic gimmick that I was working with was, you know, the tentacle horrors are actually your friends. <laughs> and <laughs> it, 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 that's, that's kind of an oversimplified version of it. But so I, I had, I had been immersing myself in Lovecraftian fiction. I was reading all of the old Lovecraft stories, Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard, um, and Robert W. Chambers, the author of The King in Yellow. And as American politics suddenly started acting like a Lovecraft story, when all of a sudden the the sort of everyday ordinary world of, of um, common or garden variety political corruption, graft and greed that, that basically <laughs> runs this country, all of a sudden was cracking and fissuring and strange tentacled shapes were rising out of the depths, except they weren't, you know, tentacled shapes. They were mostly bright orange. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Yeah. And, and so what, what happened was, I, I ended, as I started to put all this together in the, into a book, I was realizing I'm writing Lovecraftian nonfiction here, or more specifically, the stories that it reminded me most of were the ones in Robert W. Chambers' anthology, The King in Yellow. So I said, well, yes, but it's not a King in Yellow we're dealing with, it's a King in Orange. So that's where the name came from. Perfect name. And yes, I think we, I'm thinking with how to start this interview. There's so many entry points. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. because you come at it in so many ways. Uh, the audience will be taken into quite a, yeah, Lovecraftian slash Gnostic tale. Yeah, for the mm -hmm. audience, uh, I think one of my favorite uh, representations of the King in Yellow is uh, True Detective Season 1, but uh, that's just me, another great Gnostic tale. But I'd like there to start go. with the uh, idea of magic, and I'd like mm -hmm. to start with Yuan Culliano, simply because he's an individual, I feel, doesn't get the press in occultism, mm -hmm. he should, mm -hmm. even though he's an unparalleled mind. Uh, mm -hmm. I love Arrows and the Art of Magic, but obviously for this show, uh, The Tree of Gnosis is just an incredible book. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. John, what can we learn from uh, Juan Culiano's ideas on magic about the, the magic going on in American mm -hmm. politics or Western politics? Politics in general. But yeah. yeah, Juan Culiano's ideas are absolutely crucial here. He's the guy who pointed out that advertising is a debased form of magic. Um, the, the, the example that I used in my book, and it's a great, it's useful more generally, think of advertisements for brown fizzy sugar water. Um, we call that, <laughs> so, you know, cola or what have you. Right. It's brown fizzy sugar water. That's all it is. But when you look at an advertisement for brown fizzy sugar water, you're not seeing anybody saying, here are all the good things brown fizzy sugar water will do for you or anything <laughs> like that. What do you see? You see um, a group of people. They're young. They're fashionable. They're laughing. They're well-groomed. They're obviously well-to-do. Um, and they've all they're all clutching these bottles of brown fizzy sugar water or these cans of brown brown fizzy sugar water, well, they're apparently having a great time. Now, consciously, you know, and I know, and every one of our listeners knows, those people are, are actors. 
the, the clothes are not theirs. They've been made up. They've been put against a background that makes that makes them look like they're having a good time. They're not having a good time. They're just they're paid, <laughs> no. they're getting paid to look like they're having a good time while clutching these these cans of brown fizzy sugar water, and yet that ad is a magical spell. That ad is a whammy that they are putting on you to make you think at a subconscious level, wow, if I rot my teeth with brown fizzy sugar water, I'll be like them. I'll be young and handsome and happy and well-groomed and well-dressed and, 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 and obviously well-to-do. And I'll have you know some gorgeous guy or chick, as the case may be, <laughs> clinging to me as I guzzle my brown fizzy sugar water. Again, consciously, we know that's not true. Unconsciously, that's what the advertisement is supposed to do. It is there to make you stupid. It is there to shape your thinking so you'll waste your money and rot your teeth on brown fizzy sugar water, mm-hmm. um, which tastes like carbonated fruit prune juice anyway, but you know, we won't even have to get into that. <laughs> um, you see, that that's, was Kuliana's great, one of his many great insights, that um, advertising is simply cheap sorcery. It is an, uh, let's let's start let's back up a little bit here and start with the definition of magic. Good the idea. one that I like yeah the one that I like using is the one that Dion Fortune um, introduced, which she was obviously riffing off of one of Aleister Crowley's ideas, but that's you know part of the course. Magic is the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. Okay, the um, the the purveyors of brown fizzy sugar water are trying to change your consciousness. They're trying to change it without your permission. They're trying to change it to your disadvantage so that you'll think you can get handsome and rich and have a, a cute girl or guy or what have you <laughs> clinging to you um, if you rot your teeth with brown, brown fizzy sugar water, overpriced brown fizzy sugar water, I'll have you know, and, and it, which is not true. So they're making you believe a lie. And obviously it works because um, – Brown fizzy sugar water sells far more cans every year than could be justified by uh, you know any fondness for drinking carbonated prune juice. So, so here this this is you know he's pointing out this is magic. This is one form of magic. It's a debased form of magic. It's a form of magic that makes people makes people stupid. It makes people dumber than they would otherwise be because they end up believing at an unconscious level. Um, incorrect things about brown fizzy sugar water and many other things. The whole world of products, the whole world of things that advertising is meant to sell you. Every one of them is to your disadvantage and to the advantage of, of the person who's trying to sell you it. So here's one of his one of his great points is that, is that all of these things, both in politics, in business, it's all magic. It's all trying to control the way you think using things like emotionally charged images, emotionally charged slogans. Um, so, Jan Culliano got that. He understood that um, with, and was able to express it with great clarity. And that's one of the reasons why everyone's been trying not to talk about him ever since. Because if you read him, if you understand what he's saying, and then you look at the the people pushing brown fizzy sugar water at you on your television screen or what have you, or more better still, you notice that all that's going on on that television screen is different ways to trick you into buying this product or that product or the other product, none of which are are likely to be worth your while. Um, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't have to advertise them if you actually wanted them. Um, <laughs> you might actually turn it off. 
you might actually pick the te- do, do what I did many, many years ago. We're, we're talking the early 1980s here. And take your television out onto a third floor balcony and drop <laughs> it straight down into the dumpster. I'll have you know the flash and bang when the picture tube imploded was more entertaining than anything else that had ever been on that screen. So, but yeah, but that's that's just it. Um, magic is again the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. There's the magic that you do to change your consciousness in ways that you want. There's the magic that other people do, such as politicians, such as corporations, such as all the various power centers in society that they're doing to you to try to change your consciousness in ways that disadvantage you for their benefit. Well said. And yeah, and Giuliano obviously got it uh, from uh, Giordano Bruno and his ideas uh-huh. of mass spells and mass control mm-hmm. that you could do. And people might be going, well, John, this is just psychological and this and that. But I think, I mean, this is really reality bending. Have mm-hmm. you noticed, John, you can see something on an event on social media or well, television when you used to watch it. And the right and the left will have completely views of this mm-hmm. reality. And I'm going, my God, this is reality bending. They only see what they want to see yeah. regardless of the facts. Exactly. Exactly. It's reality bending. People say, well, it's only psychological. Okay. No. Let's, let's take that apart for a moment. Um, everything you experience passes through the filter of your mind. Everything you experience, whether it's fizzy brown sugar water, whether it's you know the first kiss with the person you love, whether it's um, things on social media, whether it's what's around you right now, it's all being filtered through your mind. And so, whatever is out there in the you know in, in the objective world, if we can even use that term, it's all being shaped by what's going on in your mind. And so. If you can take control of that process and shape it in ways that benefit you, that's great. If other people control that process and shape it in ways that benefit them, it's not so great. And that, and that's one of Kuliano's greatest insights, that's the way that political power is exercised these days. He points out that the, the sort of classic totalitarian state, goose-stepping goon squads and things like that, that is so early 20th century that it's just totally outdated now. The what what we have now are what he calls magician states, nations and societies that control people by controlling information, by controlling their consciousness, by making them think that there's no real alternative to the present, and so they should just sort of go along and and you know do what the nice you know, buy the nice product that the nice man on the nice advertisement tells them to buy, or buy the politician that the nice man in the nice advertisement on the nice <laughs> television tells him to buy. Um, one of the things that made the 2016 election so unnerving is that the system broke down. The magic faltered. The, ma- the magic failed. Mm-hmm. And now part, partly that was Hillary Clinton. Um, Hillary Clinton is an extreme... <laughs> yeah, human error. This is more of a bumbling, <laughs> bumbling, shooting yeah, herself yeah. in the foot. <laughs> mm-hmm. she, she, I mean, I've, I've watched presidential campaigns since um, Richard Nixon's first run. I was fairly young then. But I have never seen a more incompetent campaigner than Hillary Clinton. 
And I don't just mean that she was bad at speeches, but she was horrible at speeches. Um, I mean, during the 2016 run, she would do these big, these big attempted rallies where she'd have all these Hollywood music stars to try to get people in, and they'd all come in and listen to the stars and then walk out as soon as she stopped, started to talk because she was so dull. But that, it wasn't even that. It was that her entire campaign never actually took seriously the fact that she had to give people a reason to vote for her. Do you remember back in 2008 um, when she started her first run for the presidency, um, which ended, of course, getting scooped by Barack oh, Obama? Right Obama her. kicked her ass easily. Exactly. Yeah. And the reason it was obvious that that was going to happen the moment she um, made her first speech in that came came because the first thing she said when she got up onto the thing is, I am so ready to lead. <laughs> so it was all about her. And it never got past that. She never seems to have grasped at any point in 2008, in 2016, that she needed to give the American people a reason to think that voting for her would help them at all. In 2016, we had, what was her name, Madeleine Albright saying, you know, there's a, there's a special place in hell for women who won't help other women. <laughs> remember, and yeah. yet Albright wasn't offering to help the women she was talking to. Hillary Clinton wasn't going to do anything to help all these millions of women who were expected to vote for her just because they had two X chromosomes or whatever the official definition is this week. Um, it was that your job is to, you know, all of you out there, your job is to help Hillary Clinton and don't expect anything in return. You should help her because she wants to be president. Now, Obviously, this did not go over well. And yet the amazing thing is that the Clinton campaign never grasped that. Over and over again, they acted as though the American people, was, the American electorate, was a, was a vending machine. And they put in their quarter and were pounding on the, you know, tapping on the button, trying to get the vending machine to cough up the candy bar. And it wouldn't cough it up. And as we got toward the end of the election, um, there was Hillary Clinton pounding on the vending machine, screaming at it because it wouldn't give her her candy bar. Because it had never occurred to her. I don't think it's occurred, I don't think it's occurred to her yet that you can't. The, the electorate has its own interests, its own agenda, its own desires and hopes and dreams and fears, and you have to talk to them, not. You have to listen to them. You have to interact with them, not just push buttons and expect to get to, to get a, a nice shiny presidency out of the vending machine. And so, right there, you saw one of the ways in which the in which the the magic has broken down because it's not just Hillary. Do you remember? Let's see. This this actually went on all through the Trump years. People were from the from the managerial class, well groomed airbrushed, polished, ran these studies where they would show a bunch of Trump voters a, an advertisement that was, meant, that was meant to talk them into not voting for Trump. And after it, oh my God, they were even more uh, committed to voting for Trump. What is this strange metal aberration that is making them not believe us? Well, let's start with the fact that these you know, working class Trump voters have been lied to over and over again by well-groomed, airbrushed, managerial class talking heads for decades. They were told by Barack Obama that, um, they, could, that they could keep their plans, that they could keep their doctors, and that health care costs would go down once Obamacare got in. We all knew what happened there. 
Obama was lying. I'm pretty sure he knew he was lying, but it never occurred to him that he would be called on it. <laughs> um, or you get all of, I mean, every week the medical profession is coming out with some new piece of dubiously researched hand-waving, which always adds up to, you need to pay the medical industry more money. And here's this marvelous new drug that is going to is going to cure this and that and the other. Oops, it has side effects that start with death and then get worse. <laughs> you know, and and, the, and then and it's over and over and over again constantly. Um, think, for example, when uh, when so all, all these jobs got off short. And first, there was all this babbling about new high-paid service jobs, which didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And then it was, um, well, you need to go to college and get, you know, get training for another round of jobs, which turned out not to exist. Over and over again, people in the working class were being fed a line of garbage, which proved to be garbage, which they experienced in their own lives to be garbage. And yet the people who were pushing this never grasped the fact that the, the, the people they were victimizing realized this, that they weren't just vending machines. They weren't just blank faces going, whatever you tell us, boss. And, and, and so that, and that's basically what, what I think we can call Hillary syndrome, this, the, the, the vending machine effect. Um, it reached its climax, its, its apotheosis in Hillary Clinton frantically trying to get people to vote for her without giving them any reason to do so. Yeah, at the same time, there must have been something magical on the other side because as you write in your book the king and orange john since mm-hmm. 1966 the salary class the working class is being eroded destroyed 2008 yeah. obviously was a huge stab in the back for uh-huh. anybody who's not rich but exactly. the magic has worked from the whether it's the conservative movement the liberals uh-huh. you know the, the caretakers of this country uh-huh. the coastal elites whether they're right oh, yeah. or yeah, left yeah. Uh, yeah. How how did it lapse? I mean, was it really just Hillary, or do you think there were other archetypal forces on the other oh, side there, saying oh, there, we're lifting the veil, the mask is off? <laughs> that's the, a lot of what happened. A lot of what kept the mask in place. A lot of what kept the the runaround was precisely that both parties, up until 2016, both parties were in it up to their eyeballs. Both parties were cooperating in screwing the working class. Yep. We can get we'll get we can get to that in a moment. They were cooperating in the state of affairs and bickering about little things that didn't matter. All the while, they were of course taking lots of money into their own pockets. What happened in 2016 was that somebody went into the political arena from outside. That someone was Donald Trump. He started talking about how maybe it's a bad idea to ship all of our jobs overseas. Maybe this is hurting people. Instantly, when he said that, the entire managerial class, the whole salary class, turned on him because they knew which way they, they knew which way the wind was blowing. They knew instantly that if somebody started talking turkey about what had been done to the wage class, that the game was over. And and you'll remember in. Um, in 2015, 2016, as Trump's campaign got going, the media was one long cat call coming up with one excuse after another. Why, of course, nobody will ever vote for Trump, blah, blah, blah. And guess what? That again, the magic didn't work. It's very much like the, um, well, think fairy tales of the Rumpelstiltskin type. You have this magical being who can keep everybody in this incredibly miserable situation as long as nobody speaks its name. 
And the moment the clever girl says, I know your name, it's Rumpelstiltskin. The, the, the spell is broken. And all of a sudden, as we saw, there's the king in orange. Um, <laughs> now, the, the crucial thing here, the absolutely crucial thing here is precisely the point you made about what I call the wage class, the people in America who make an hourly wage without, usually without benefits. Um, they have been destroyed. This is the, the most important and least discussed political fact of our time. You have um, a situation where in, well, you know, in, 19, in, in 1966, let's say, um, a working class family with one income, family of four with one, one working class income could afford a home, could afford a car, could afford three square meals a day, could afford health care, could afford all the necessities of life, and maybe even have a little leftover to, to pay for a birthday party for the kids once in a while. Okay, in 2016, 50 years later, a working a family of four on one working class salary was living on the street, and an enormous number of people couldn't get one full time working class salary because so many jobs have been offshored and so many jobs have been knocked down to part time level. That we had the destruction of an entire class, the entire wage class, have been devastated by this. Millions of small towns. Um, just the whole landscape of America outside of the coastal bubbles have been ravaged by this, and nobody was willing to talk about it because the managerial class had profited from these things, and so they didn't especially want to talk about the fact that that, that they were that they had enjoyed the benefits of a set of process that had sent tens of millions of Americans into misery and poverty. Yeah, and here we are. And uh, and here like, we are. <laughs> at the same time, once uh, Trump won, the mm -hmm. managerial class still didn't accept their defeat. They went into a complete mm -hmm. denial, uh, mm -hmm. virtue signaling, divide and mm -hmm. conquer, manufacturing thing. I mean, is this, mm -hmm. uh, I guess, is you know, is, as you write in your book, it was one of the stages of grief of denial. So therefore, yeah. they were going to make up, it was going to be Russia or whatever. <laughs> well, <laughs> or people <yeah>. are stupid. <laughs> we're just yeah, stupid. <laughs> or, or racist. We've all got, we've got to blame it on racism. It cannot have had any other cause but bad people doing bad things. It was really fascinating in the months after the election. I, I knew a lot of people who voted for Trump. I talked to them. I asked them why they voted for Trump. They told me it wasn't any of the reasons that they got on the media. And I happen to know that a lot of people talked to reporters and things like that and said, no, that wasn't the reason. It was this, 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 and this. But the media was having none of it because they had to insist that the only reason anybody could have voted, could have voted against the continued domination of the salary class, the continued domination of the managerial state was because they were evil. <laughs> and and so that was that was just part of yes it was denial it was also a frontal attack to try to stop this process that was risking the risking the overthrow of man, of the managerial class's control of, of American politics and society um, and that's you know it 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 did not take any particular amount of effort to find out that the whole races of shtick or russia yes it had boris badenov and natasha personally cast all those votes for trump <laughs> the the whole point it was the whole point was again to distract things to to diffuse to hide to veil to negate the actual reality when i talked to people who had voted for trump 
Um, I, I basically got four reasons. First, the, the, actually the most common was the risk of war. An enormous number of people had watched Hillary Clinton swaggering around talking about making the Russians get out of, of Syria, talking about you know playing, playing hardball with the Russians and forcing a no-fly zone. The Russians were there with troops, with guns, with planes. They were showing no signs of backing down. An enormous number of people from the working classes, many of whom had families in the military, were going, I don't want my son to come home in a body bag from yet another war of choice that the salary classes decided, oh, cool, why don't we have a war? We won't suffer. It's everyone else. It's other people who will die. And so that was simple. That was, a, that, that was the most common reason stated. And I think it was quite a reasonable one. The second um, was, let's see, this, this, oh, where am I? I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to remember the list here. Um, one, that another was a, a, illegal immigration. Now that was, that was the third. The second one was the, was the Obamacare disaster. Oh yeah. You're right. Um, an enormous number of people belong to the category. Um, the, the very, very large category of whom I'm one, by the way, who made too much to benefit from subsidies and not enough to afford Obamacare. I mean, it would have cost me more per month to get, to get health care, get the cheapest Obamacare coverage um, for myself and my wife, coverage so bad that it would have had a $6,000 deductible and 40% co-pays, okay? Wow. Would have cost more each month than our mortgage. Wow. Okay? And the thing is, we weren't alone. I knew a lot of people in the same boat. There, I, there are many, many people in the same boat. And so that's any, and of course it had been ratchet and the, the, the premiums had kept on ratcheting up year after year. And everyone was going, well, everyone in, in power was going, what's the problem? Just pay your payments, you know, end up <laughs> on the street. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of people voted because of the Obamacare disaster. The third was the issue surrounding jobs. And that's a complex one because you've got illegal immigration, not immigration in general, but illegal immigration bringing in a huge class of non-citizens who have no legal rights, who can be made to work at sweatshop wages under any conditions you want to drive down wages and, and benefits and working conditions for everybody. You have offshoring. You also have the regulatory state. Um, one of the things about federal regulations is that it benefits big business against small business. Big business always has enough lawyers. They can, they can maneuver all this stuff. Small business can't. Small business produces more jobs. So all these things are a way to decrease the number of jobs and increase the number of people competing for them, driving down wages to starvation levels. That was a huge issue. Nobody wanted to talk about it. And then the fourth one was simply, I know a lot of Democrats were incensed by the way that Hillary Clinton stole the 2016 nomination from Bernie Sanders. Right, they, yeah. were they were convinced that Sanders would have won easily um, if it had been honest. And they're convinced that he also would have cleaned Donald Trump's clock in no time. I think they're right. I think so too, but, yeah. Be, but because because Hillary basically stole the election with the hell, or stole the nomination with the help of the Democratic Party apparatchiks, um, they were going to vote for Trump purely to show the Demo to teach the Democratic Party a lesson. And so those were the four reasons why people I knew voted for Donald Trump. None of them had to do with racism. And the claims that it was all about racism and Donald Trump and an evil racist and how could blah blah blah, it was again. Evasion, diversion, magic, magic basically yeah. <laughs> an attempt to raise a smokescreen 
a, a cloud of, de, of denial and illusion to hide the fact that the managerial class had been caught out engaging in some very unsavory behavior. Yeah. I want to continue with the magic because, mm -hmm. uh, again, the magic continued in the four years before, as oh, your book talks oh, yes. about, we've got, you know, Keck and Chatelet and the rise <laughs> of chaos magic. But mm -hmm. during the Trump era, as everybody was girding their loins and attacking Trump because he was, mm -hmm. uh, I always laugh because they say, we defeated fascism. And I'm like, well, how do you vote out fascism? Am I missing mm -hmm. something history? I mean, you... <laughs> I've never, I thought that's not how it works, is it? But <laughs> no, uh, well, fasc I mean, fascism is enough of those, those buzzwords. Yeah, magic um, words. <laughs> yeah, one of those magic words. People use fascism to mean whatever I hate. The funny thing is that George Orwell, who's kind of a specialist in this, the author of 1984, <laughs> yeah. he had an essay where he talked about the fact that already, this is in the 1940s, language had been so debased that the word fascism just meant whatever I hate, something of which you ought to disapprove. And he was right. Um, Donald Trump is not a fascist, not in any meaningful sense of that word. But that word was used, it was abused, it was deliberately deployed by people who are burning books, by people who are marching down the streets in black uniforms and beating people up and torching buildings. Who are the Nazis here? Don't, and don't ask that question on the mainstream media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah at the same time uh, through all this chaos and chaos magic uh, mm -hmm. you talk about how you think chaos magic is like uh, light beer but uh, well, that's it, your opinion I, mean, <laughs> I, I am i am in i mean it's it, it, there's no no point arguing about what, what kind of beer you like i know people who like light right. beer. um i know pe i know people who practice chaos magic and get good results from it i prefer Dar a dark, full-bodied brew, whether we're talking beer, whether we're talking traditional Western occultism. Uh, I don't do the light beer stuff, but that's fine. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, at the same time, you also had Magic the Resistance. And the you, magic you write about, yeah, I remember you actually were, a lot of this you blogged about. I mean, mm, oh, yeah. Your book, oh, I was, so. I, I was, I was watching, I was watching this, this, uh, flustered cluck unfold now to un the, the magic the, the magic resistance is fascinating because it's there was almost nobody doing magic against donald trump before the election because almost everybody in the privileged classes was convinced that of course hillary clinton was going to win nobody could possibly vote for trump they convinced themselves of this not bright um but so you had this these whales of outrage you had the, these these comprehensive meltdowns. And as soon as people, as soon as the screaming declined uh, 20 or 30 um, decibels or so, um, yeah, you had these various people from the leftward end of things who were doing these big magical workings to try to, or to, try to stop Trump. And it was really interesting because to, to begin with, on average, there are exceptions, there are important exceptions, but on average, magical practice in modern America is much more often associated with the political left than with the political right. Oh, yeah. You've got the Wiccan scene, you've got the goddess worship scene, you've got most of American Buddhism, which strays into magic more often than you might think. You have this whole, this whole realm of popular magic, which is almost all associated with people on the left. And so you'd think that they would have an overwhelming advantage, and they would have 
if they'd paid attention to the basic principles of magical theory. And there are two specific points here. Uh, the first was that the magic resistance, when they wanted to do a spell, they splashed it all over the internet. You had articles on the medium giving the full text. You had everything out there. It was all done very publicly. <clears throat> if you want to do successful magic, you do not do that. Um, Eliphas Levy, who launched the modern magical revival back in 1854, um, used to say there, there are four necessary virtues in magic to know, to dare, to will, and to be silent. One of my teachers back in the day used to say to know, to dare, to will, and to shut the <clears throat> up. <laughs> and he's right. It's partly, if you've ever been involved in any creative work, if you've ever written, like, like written stories or composed music or, or poems or anything, the more you talk about it, the less you get done. You bleed off the energy. But also, um, in a situation like this where there were plenty of people on the other side of the conflict who were perfectly willing to cast spells to monkey wrench yours, um, putting all your spells out there on the internet was about the same as doing a poker game and then showing everybody else at the table what, you're, what you had in your hand. You do that, you lose. And they did. So that was one of the problems that they had. That was, and that was a severe problem. The other problem was in many ways even more important, which is that they were too busy, focused on, too busy focusing on stopping Trump. They had no, they had no positive agenda at all. And this is crucial. Dion Fortune, who I mentioned earlier, um, led an effort in the British occult community to counter the Nazis back during the, the Second World War. And she succeeded. It was a very successful magical working. And one of the things they did, they did not attack the Nazis. They built up magically the consciousness of Britain. Their thought was, and, and Fortune is quite accurate, if you, build up, if, if, if you, if you win, the other side is going to lose by default. If you build up your side, you're building up these positive, constructive energies. And if the other side's wallowing in negative energies, they're going to have magical blowback from that, quote, karma, quote, it is a real force. And so, but what happened is you had all of these people flinging curses and all kinds of nastiness at Trump and at, you know, um, Brett Kavanaugh and all of these people just throwing one hissy fit after another and invoking some really noxious energies. And of course, those energies manifested in their lives as well, but they, it didn't work because negative magic doesn't. Negative magic is weak. Negative magic looks strong if you don't know much. But in reality, if they'd concentrated on building up their side, instead of tearing down the other guy, they would have done fine. They might have accomplished an enormous amount. Instead, you know, what did they do? They cast the, the, the fast series of spells, nationwide spells, to keep Brett Kavanaugh from being, um, being um, confirmed as a Supreme Court justice. And what happened? The day after they announced the spells, all opposition to his candidacy in the Senate collapsed, and he was sworn in without further problem. You know, abject failure. They did another one where they were trying to force the force the NRA and, and destroy the NRA. And the NRA had its best fundraising year or its best <laughs> fundraising month rather in its history the following month. So clearly they were not doing something right. But the fascinating thing is they couldn't see that. 
I had a series of online debates with a guy who was heavily involved in this whole thing. And it was, it was like talking to Hillary Clinton. It, seriously, I'm saying, look, these are, these are money slope spells. And he's like, no, they're not. They're powerful spells. No, they're not. They have, they have none of the things that make for powerful magic. They, they are designed to be used by complete beginners. They are incoherent. The symbolism is, is all over the place. And he's going, no, these are powerful, powerful spells. As though by saying that, it made it the case. And that, and of course, that, that's Hillary. That's that's the Hillary symptom, or the Hillary syndrome. She's stuck. You know, he was stuck pounding in that vending machine, trying to get it to cough up a candy bar again, instead of dealing with the magical universe as a community where you have to make your case. Right, and they could have propped up uh, Marianne Williamson or Bernie Sanders again, but uh, exactly. I don't think they wanted. Nobody wanted Biden. <laughs> no, no, but well, Biden. Biden is a fa- the, the whole Biden thing is fascinating because what happened, of course, if you remember the the Democratic, um, the campaign for the Democratic nomination, everyone else was further to the left than he was, and nobody wanted that. I mean, if one of the one of the things that the the extremists in the in the Democratic Party you're desperately trying not to notice is that about eight percent of Americans actually support the extremist woke agenda. About eight percent. Maybe another twelve percent are willing to follow along with some of it, but it's a total of twenty percent, at least eighty percent of the American electorate going, not a chance. And so you had all of these figures who were busy pushing being as woke as possible in the debates, and nobody was voting for them. And Biden more or less got the nomination by default because, you know, he wasn't as extreme as the others. So he sort of, you know, typical for Joe Biden, he just kind of bumbled his way into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much like in many ways like Trump, but kept a bull <laughs> yeah, in a well, china shop, but he still bumbled his way through things. Oh yeah, oh yeah. The, the thing, the thing. We've had this happen over and over again over the last two decades, where you've had somebody, a complete political outsider, who ends up getting into office. Jesse Ventura in in Minnesota was another example. Their problem is that they don't know how to how to work the political machinery. And that, that's, that's a full-time job, and it's something you have to learn. You have to, it, it's not something that comes instantly. So if Trump had been a professional politician, if he had known his way around Washington, he could have um, cleaned things up very quickly, and um, a whole bunch of very distinguished people would probably be in jail now. But instead, because he didn't know the system, because he didn't know where the levers and buttons were, he didn't know how to make the system work, he was he was marginalized and he was prevented from accomplishing many of his goals and and down he went now at this point of course we have some serious serious um republican politicians who are have watched the trump phenomenon and are saying i can do that you've got desantis down in florida you got christy noam in south dakota you've got um Oh come on, Ted, Senator Ted Cruz. Um, you've got Governor Abbott down in Texas. All of them are basically pulling from Trump's playbook at this point, and they're professionals. And if one of the one or more of, I mean, I think probably all four of them are going to be running for president in 2024, uh, unless Trump does, and he's of course dropping signals as usual. Um, and if they run for president and one of them gets it, they have the necessary skills. But Trump didn't. So yeah, he kind of he did a lot of stumbling. Yeah, I wish. Well, I wish both parties would go away, but that's not going to happen unless I can uh, okay. find 
some great magic yeah. myself. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, I, I want to also get back to another type of magic, a uh, mutual mm -hmm. favorite of ours, the Swiss magician himself, Jung. John, how does Jung help us? And I know that's an obvious one because I have talked so much on the show with Jungians about this is the great era of projecting your shadow. I mean, mm -hmm. Jungian analysis, who are Democrats are like, why does every stop projecting on Trump? Trump is a great receptacle where we can throw our, our, our anger, yeah. but also our hopes. I mean, false hopes. Exactly. Oh, yeah. No, no Donald, Donald Trump was a walking, talking screen onto which people projected the most amazing array of things. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, an enormous number of people from the comfortable classes in projected all, and, and they projected all of their own images of evil onto him, and all of the, and an enormous number of people from the from the working classes and and from some of the other classes that supported him, they projected messianic fantasies onto him. Now the thing, always as you know well, the thing that you can always tell from a shadow projection is that it's your shadow. That you're that you're projecting. You people always project what they can't stand about themselves, and so the people who were all shrieking fascist, fascist, racist, racist, or what have you at Donald Trump, you know what they're saying about themselves. Mm -hmm. And the people who are projecting messianic delusions onto Trump, you know how what how they're viewing themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's very useful in that. He's been very useful in that way in that he allows us to see the psychological dysfunctions of our age to an astonishing degree. And, and more generally, one of the things that I think makes Donald Trump so incendiary and so, so unbearable to people in the comfortable classes, in the privileged intelligentsia and so on, is that he is so American. <laughs> and well, no, the, the, the thing is, the, the American intelligentsia since colonial times, its shtick is to pretend that they're not American. No, 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 we're not American. Back in the day, it was English, and then it was French. These days, it's more or less Scandinavian. They're all fixated on something other than America because that allows them to look down their noses at the rubes from the provinces as they, as they see it. <laughs> it allows them to pretend to be better than other people, which is, of course, you know, central to their psyche and central to their whole worldview for reasons I talk about in the book. Um, but so that's tr the problem is Trump is so American. He's brash. He's loud. He's rich. He's gaudy. He does not care. And he's insanely successful. Yeah, he's American dream. He's the American dream come true. He's exactly. the apex he, he, of this country. We we deserve him. Our sins are there. I think you know? <laughs> this is what we wanted, right? Exactly, exactly. And I think one of the reasons that he attracts so much of that projection is precisely because we are we are all Donald Trump. It's just some of us don't want to admit it. <laughs> we are Donald Trump is 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 our is our own is our own image. He is our likeness. He is, he is our self made manifest there before us in all his orange glory. And so, oh, you know, both the grandiosity. Do, do you remember this, this got splashed all over the internet at various points. There was an Italian parade float. Oh my God. Yes, Donald yes, Trump yes. as God emperor in golden armor with his sword, with Twitter birds on it and, and things like that. It was, it was hilarious. 
And it was so Trump. It was perfectly Trump. And it, a lot of the people who were pro-Trump, because I was back in the, I, I, I was hanging out on pro-Trump and anti-Trump websites all through this time, kind of just lurking, paying attention, watching the talk. And on the pro-Trump website, people loved that. And you could see their own psychology mirrored in it. And so, and, and America's psychology, we as a nation have this sense of grandiosity. What, what uh, Francois Mitterrand back in the day called our almost messianic sense of national purpose. So, yeah. Um, and at the same time, over on the other end of the political spectrum, you have everyone projecting their own shadow as, as though they wanted to show Carl Jung how it's done. <laughs> and they were projecting their own grandiosity and their own hatred and their own negativity and their own greed and all this onto Donald Trump because that made it possible for them to pretend that they were the good people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the good people, virtue the signaling, good people, all the stuff the you virtue wrote. The <laughs> nice people, the people who care, the people who were, go were happy to see policies put in place that plunge tens of millions of Americans into poverty and misery. The good people. The people who are backing... Um, who, who, were, who were laughing and cheering as Barack Obama vaporized wedding parties on the other side of the world personally. Because yeah, he the, ran the drone strikes himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the people so, who want to yeah. bring down statues instead of simply ending the war on drugs and ending the prison industrial complex, the mm -hmm. stuff that will really help, but yeah, well, they're not but they don't want. No, they don't want it to really help because the people who are doing this are people who want the existing order to continue, and for good reason. It's been very good for them. You know, they have, they, they have the things they want. They have the sense of superiority to most Americans. They have, you know, the privileged lifestyles and all this kind of stuff. So, of course, they want the situation to remain in place. They don't want actual reform because actual reform would require them to give up, thing, you know, to give up their comforts, to be a little less comfortable, to not have, to have to pay more for the goods and services that they use and all this kind of stuff. In your book, John, you talk about how Jung was able to, uh, it was very prescient to be able to see Wotan coming down <laughs> into Europe before, obviously, the horrors that happened before World oh, War yeah. II and during World oh, War yeah. II. He saw that. What do you think Jung would have say now? Would he say that Trump was an aspect of the trickster, or what do you think Jung would have said? Okay. The, yeah, to, to Trump's, I, I would love to make um, Jung's essay, Votan, required reading for all of our listeners. Seriously, you folks, if you have not, it's in, it's in the volume Civilization in Transition. It's also splashed in various places online. Votan, W-O-T-A-N -W -W by Carl Jung. Read that puppy and think about what it says. Um, in the early 1930s, as late as, what was it, 35, 36 when that was published, I think, um, most people thought of Adolf Hitler as a second-rate Mussolini imitator. They thought that he was this minor little figure who'd been just this, this funny little man who'd been coughed up by the convulsions of German politics. I know he'll, he'll be out of office any time now. And Carl Jung looked at the situation and said, no, what is going on in Germany is not politics as usual. What is going on in Germany is that an archetype has seized control and it's projected itself onto this funny little man with the toothbrush mustache. And because it's the archetype of Wotan, the wild hunter, 
uh, Votan, the god of the dead, Votan, the war god. Um, there's going to be war. There's going to be mass death. And it's all going to come crashing down because that's how myths, that's how the myths of Votan always end. It always goes straight to Ragnarok. That's built into the structure of the myth. So anybody who was paying attention could figure that out, but no, almost nobody was. And Carl Jung published this and people went, eh, he, come on. And then we saw what happened. Now, Donald Trump is not Hitler. He doesn't even have a toothbrush mustache. He's not <laughs> the same kind of person, even though an enormous number of people on the left love to make that comparison, showing their own psychological ignorance. Um, but there is a point going on here because Trump has become a focus for the projection of an archetype. And now we'll see if that continues now. He's, you know, he's, he's starting to, obviously he can't tweet anymore. They've taken away his Twitter um, access, but he's, pretty, he's sending out statements and people are tweeting those. And we're starting to see, the, I understand next month he's going to start MAGA rallies again. Oh boy. And so oh boy. here we go. Now, you know, he, he, knows his, he knows his game. And however it plays out, he's going to play it to the end. That's, that's the kind of man he is. But he is, in fact, embodying an archetype. And my, my speculation, which I discuss in the book, The King in Orange, is that it is one of the archetypes that's native to this continent. One of the crucial points that Jung makes and that some other thinkers have made also is that some archetypes are universal and some aren't. Wotan, for example, is a Central European archetype. He, he only makes sense there. He only manifests there. Here, if you want to know the real archetypes, as, as, um, you know, as, as people, especially Native American teachers, have been pointing out for a very long time, Vine Deloria Jr. is an excellent writer, a very deep thinker, Native American thinker. His book, God is Red, talks about this. You need to know the stories of the land that you're on. And here, that means Native American stories here in, here in the United States and in Canada and other parts of North America. Um, there's a figure that you have in Native American legends all over the continent um, who is usually called the transformer or the changer. And what the changer does is he makes things different. It's, there's there's a, lot of these, a lot of these stories, especially where, where I grew up on the Pacific Coast in Washington State and so on in Oregon, where the changer is the one who shows up to make the world the way it is now before the people come. And so there are always all of these people, there are all these creatures, strange beings who are there already. And some of them, um, some of them decide they want to kill the changer because they don't want the world to be changed. And, but he, he, so, so, you know, he comes, the changer comes along and here's this guy who's making a, a making a wooden board. And the changer goes, hey, well, what you up to? And the guy making the board says, well, there's this guy coming who's going to change things. I'm making this wooden board. I'm going to hit him over the head and kill him. And so the changer picks up the wooden board and sticks it on the sides, on the guy's backside, goes zap, and says, okay, from now on, your name is Beaver. And when the people come, they'll hunt you for your, they're going to hunt you for your, for your skin. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and there are all of these stories like that. And And this is what we've seen is that Donald Trump has been going zot. You know, from now on, your name is protester. <laughs> you know, here's the, stick the pussy hat on your head and the, and the placard in your hands. You know, and when the people come, they're going to meme you for the laughs. <laughs> he, but he is one of those transformative figures who is in the process of changing the country into something different. And 
just as in the legend, we have all those people who are, you know, gathering up their 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 pussy hats and placards or whatever else, um, uh, subpoenas and elections and um, you know ballots and so on. They're going to stop the changer, and it doesn't seem to be helping much. I, I think a lot of folks have noted that for for all of his rhetoric on the campaign trail, Biden has really reversed very few of Trump's policy changes. I mean, there have been a few. There have been a few widely ballyhooed, but far more than not has just have just been allowed to remain. And that's because I think a lot of people are beginning to grasp that some of these changes actually have to happen. Well, I think we are at the end of the interview. I'd like to thank you very much, John, for coming on Aeon Byte and discussing your book, which I highly recommend for many reasons, The King in Orange, The Magical and Occult Roots of Political Power. Well, thank you. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of my interview with John Michael Greer. Ready to get more into seeing behind the Empire's hologram? In our second part, John will continue with Jungian ideas and symbolism. John will give us his predictions on what will happen socio-politically to this country in the near future, really all of Western culture. He'll share why we're done with any technological advancements, so stop waiting for the flying car, AI, or trips to Mars. We'll get into the ideas of Oswald Spengler, and this will lead to John also predicting where on the globe the next great civilization will sprout from. You'll be surprised. In the end, John will explain why you shouldn't get too worried, what you can do to make a better future, and how just to stay sane. Don't miss it. As mentioned in the intro, I will include my interview with Gary Lockman on his similarly themed book, Dark Star Rising. Although John talks about chaos magic in The King in Orange, we focus more on high-level archetypal and magical aspects of politics today. In my interview with Gary, we centered on chaos and other magic in Western politics. Not just in the USA, but in Russia too. Don't miss that too. So become an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon for the full dope. And please support this Red Pill Cafeteria and continue to make this heresy grow. I won't get into my usual drivel, but go to the God Above God Dead Cam for means to get the full shows and support and all the rewards and bonuses that come with it. Beyond Aeon Byte, support those in the alternative media because the traditional ways are just extensions of that wickedness in high places. We niche podcasters and YouTubers aren't perfect, but we are all searching for answers to break out into some sort of freedom from the Black Iron Prison. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.